Volume One, Chapter Two of Vixen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Capricia Page. Vixen by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Volume One, Chapter Two. Lady Jane Vaudrey. It is not dogs only that are jealous, thought Roderick, as he went home in the broom, with all the windows down, and the cool night breeze blowing his cigar smoke away into the forest, to mix with the mist wreaths that were curling up from the soft ground. It was an offence of the highest grade to smoke in his mother's carriage, but Rory was in an evil temper just now, and found a kind of bitter pleasure in disobedience. The carriage bowled swiftly along the straight, well-made road, but Rory hated riding in the broom. The soft, padded confinement galled him. "'Why couldn't she send me my dog-cart?' he asked himself indignantly. Briarwood was a large white house in a small park. It stood on much higher ground than the Abbey House, and was altogether different from that good old relic of a bygone civilization. Briarwood was distinctly modern. Its decorations savoured of the Regency. Its furniture was old-fashioned, without being antique. The classic stiffness and straightness of the first French empire distinguished the gilded chairs and tables in the drawing-room. There were statues by Chantry and Canova in the spacious lofty hall, portraits by Lawrence and Romney in the dining-room, a historical picture by Copley, over the elephantine mahogany sideboard, a Greek sarcophagus for wines under it. At its best, the Briarwood house was commonplace, but to the mind of Lady Jane Vaudrey, the gardens and hothouses made amends. She was a profound horticulturalist, and spent half her income on orchids and rare newly imported flowers, and by this means she had made Briarwood one of the show-places of the neighbourhood. "'A woman must be distinguished for something, or she is no better than her scullery-maid,' said Lady Jane to her son, excusing herself for these extravagances. "'I have no talent for music, painting, or poetry, so I devote myself to orchids, and perhaps my orchids turn out better than many people's music and poetry.' Lady Jane was not a pleasant-tempered woman, and enjoyed the privilege of being more feared than liked, a privilege of which she makes the most, and which secured her immunity from many annoyances to which good-natured people are subject. She did good to her poor neighbours, in her own cold-set way, but the poor people about Briarwood did not send to her for wine and brandy as if she kept a public-house and was benefited by their liberal patronage. The curate at the little Gothic church down in the tiny village in the hollow of the wooded hills did not appeal to Lady Jane in his necessities for church or parish. She subscribed handsomely to all orthodox, well-established charities, but was not prone to accidental benevolence. Nobody ever disappointed her when she gave a dinner, or omitted the duty-call afterwards but she had no unceremonious gatherings, no gossipy kettle-drums, no hastily arranged picnics or garden-parties, 
when people in the neighbourhood wanted to take their friends to see the orchids they wrote to lady jane first and made it quite a state affair and on an appointed afternoon the lady of briarwood received them richly clad in a dark velvet gown and a point-lace cap as if she had just walked out of an old picture and there were three or four gardeners in attendance to open doors and cut specimen blossoms for the guest she's a splendid woman admirable in every way said roderick to an oxford chum with whom he had been discussing lady jane's virtues but if a fellow could have a voice in the matter she's not the mother i would have chosen for myself ambition was the leading characteristic of lady jane's mind as a girl she had been ambitious for herself and that ambition had been disappointed as a woman her ambition transferred itself to her son she was the eldest daughter of the earl of ludway a nobleman who had been considerably overweighted in the handicap of life having nine children seats in three counties a huge old house in st james's square and a small income his three estates consisting of some of the barrenest and most unprofitable lands in great britain of lord ludway's nine children five were daughters and of these lady jane was the eldest and the handsomest even in her nursery she had a very distinct notion that for her marriage meant promotion she used to play at being married at st george's hanover square and would never consent to have a ceremony performed by less than two bishops even though the part of one hierarch had to be represented by the nursery hearth-broom in due course lady jane umley made her debut in society in all the bloom and freshness of her stately saxon beauty she was admired and talked about and acknowledged as one of the belles of that season her portrait was engraved in the book of beauty and her ball programmes were always filled with the very best names but at the end of the season lady ludway went back to the yorkshire wolds with a biting sense of failure and mortification her handsome daughter had not sent her arrow home to the goal she had not received a single offer worth talking about don't you think you could consent to be married by one bishop and a dean jenny if the marquis comes to the scratch soon after the twelfth asked lady jane's youngest brother derisively he had been made to do bishop in those play-weddings of lady jane's very often when the function went against the grain the marquis thus familiarly spoken about was lord strishfogel the richest nobleman in ireland and a great sea-rover famous for his steam-yachts and his importance generally he had admired lady jane's statuesque beauty and had been more particular in his attentions than than the rest of her satellites who for the most part merely worshipped her because it was the right thing to do lord strishfogel had promised to come to heron's nest lord ludway's place in the wolds for the grouse shooting but instead of keeping his promise this erratic young peer went off to the golden horn to race his yacht against the vessel of the great turkish official this was lady jane umley's first disappointment she had liked lord strishfogel just well enough to fancy herself deeply in love with him and she was unconscious of the influence his rank and wealth had exercised upon her feelings she had thought of herself so often as the marchioness of strishfogel 
had so completely projected her mind into that brilliant future that to descend from this giddy height to the insignificance of unwedded girlhood was as sharp a fall as if she had worn a crown and lost it her second season began and lord strishfogel was still a rover he was in the south seas by this time writing a book and enjoying halcyon days among the friendly natives swimming like a dolphin in those summery seas and indulging in harmless flirtations with dusky princesses whose chief attire was made of shells and flowers and whose untutored dancing was more vigorous than refined at the end of that second season jane unley had serious thoughts of turning philanthropist and taking a shipload of destitute young women to australia anything would be better than this sense of wasted life and ignominious failure she was in this frame of mind when mr vaudrey came to heron's nest for the shooting he was a commoner but his family was one of the oldest in hampshire and he had lately distinguished himself by some rather clever speeches in the house of commons his estate was worth fifteen thousand a year and he was altogether a man of some mark above all he was handsome manly and a gentleman to the marrow of his bones and he was the first man who ever fell over head and ears in love with jane umley the charms that had repelled more frivolous admirers attracted john vaudrey that proud calm beauty of lady jane's seemed to his mind the perfection of womanly grace here was a wife for a man to adore upon his knees a wife to be proud of a wife to rule her vassals like a queen and to lead him john vaudrey on to greatness he was romantic chivalrous aspiring and lady jane umley was the first woman he had met who embodied the heroine of his youthful dreams he proposed and was refused and went away despairing it would have been a good match undoubtedly a truth which lord and lady ludway urged with some iteration upon their daughter but it would have been a terrible descent from the ideal marriage which lady jane had set up in her own mind as the proper prize for so fair a runner in life's race she had imagined herself a marchioness with a vast territory of mountain vale and lake and influence in the sister island second only to that of royalty she could not descend all at once to behold herself the wife of a plain country gentleman whose proudest privilege it was to write m p after his name the earl and countess were urgent for they had another daughter ready for the matrimonial market and were inclined to regard lady jane as an old shopkeeper but they knew their eldest daughter's temper and did not press the matter too warmly another season lady jane's fourth and lady sophia's first began and ended lady sophia was piquant and witty and with a snub nose and a playful disposition she was a first-rate horsewoman an exquisite waltzer good at croquet archery billiards and all games requiring accuracy of eye and aim and lady sophia brought down her bird in a single season she went home to heron's nest a duchess in embryo the duke of dovedale a bulky middle-aged nobleman with a passion for field sports and high farming had seen lady sophia riding a dangerous horse in rotten row and had been so charmed by her management of the brute 
as to become from that hour her slave. A pretty girl, with such a seat in her saddle, and such a light hand for a horse's mouth, was the next best thing to a goddess. Before the season was over the duke had proposed, and had been graciously accepted by the young lady, who felt an inward glow of pride at having done so much better than the family beauty. "'Can I ever forget how that girl Jane had snubbed me?' said Lady Sophia to her favourite brother. "'And to think that I shall be sitting in ermine robes in the House of Lords, while she is peeping through the nasty iron fretwork in the ladies' gallery to catch a glimpse of the top of her husband's head in the House of Commons.' This splendid engagement of Lady Sophia's turned the tide for the faithful John Vaudrey. Lady Jane met her rejected lover at Trouville, and was so gracious to him that he ventured to renew his suit, and, to his delighted surprise, was accepted. Anything was better than standing out in the cold while the ducal engagement was absorbing everybody's thoughts and conversation. Lady Sophia had boasted, in that playful way of hers, of having her beauty sister for chief bridesmaid, and the beauty sister had made up her mind that this thing should not be. Perhaps she would have married a worse man than John Vaudrey to escape such infamy. And John Vaudrey was by no means disagreeable to her. Nay, it had been pride, and not any disinclination for the man himself that had bidden her reject him. He was clever, distinguished, and he loved her with a romantic devotion which flattered and pleased her. Yes, she would marry John Vaudrey. Everybody was delighted at this concession, the lady's parents and belongings, most especially so. There were two daughters disposed of, and if the beauty had made the inferior match, it was only one of those capricious turns of fortune that are more to be expected than the common order of things. So there was a double marriage the following spring at St. George's, and Lady Jane's childish desire was gratified. There were two bishops at the ceremony, true that one was only colonial, and hardly ranked higher than the nursery hearth-broom. Fate was not altogether unkind to Lady Jane. Her humble marriage was much happier than her sister's loftier union. The Duke, who had been so good-natured as a lover, proved stupid and somewhat tiresome as a husband. He gave his mind to hunting and farming, and cared for nothing else. His chief conversation was about cattle and manure, guano and composts, the famous white Chillingham oxen, or the last thing in strawberry roans. He spent a small fortune that would have been large for a small man in the attempt to acclimatize strange animals in his park in the Midlands. Sophia, Duchess of Dovedale, had seven country seats and no home. Her children were puny and feeble. They sickened in the feudal Scotch castle. They languished in the Buckinghamshire Eden a freestone palace set among the woods that overhang the valley of the Thames. No breezes that blow could waft strength or vitality to those feeble lungs. At thirty the Duchess of Dovedale had lost all her babies, save one frail sapling, a girl of two years old, who promised to have a somewhat better constitution than her perished brothers and sisters. On this small paragon the Duchess concentrated her cares and hopes. She gave up hunting, much to the disgust of that Nimrod, her husband, in order to superintend her nursery. From the most pleasure-loving of matrons she became the most domestic. 
lady mabel ashbourne was to grow up the perfection of health wisdom and beauty under her mother's loving care that would have been a great fortune for there was a considerable portion of the duke's property which he was free to bequeath to his daughter he had coal-pits in the north and a tin-mine in the west he had a house in kensington which he had built for himself a model queen anne mansion with every article of furniture made on the strictest aesthetic principles and not an anachronism from the garrets to the cellars you might have expected to meet marlborough on the stairs and to find addison reading in the library the scottish castle and the buckinghamshire paradise would go with the title but the duke delighted with the easy-going sport of the new forest which brought six hundred acres between stony cross and romsey a wide stretch of those low level pastures across which you see the distant roofs and spires of the good old market town and had made himself an archetype farmhouse and had built himself a hunting-box with stables and kennels of the most perfect kind and this estate with the queen anne house and the pits and the mind was his very own to dispose of as he pleased lady jane's marriage had proved happy her husband always egged on by her ambitious promptings had made himself an important figure in the senate and had been on the eve of entering the cabinet as colonial secretary when death cut short his career a hard winter and a sharp attack of bronchitis nipped the aspiring senator in the bud lady jane was as nearly broken-hearted as so cold a woman could be she had loved her husband better than anything in this life except herself he had left her with one son and a handsome jointure with the full possession of briarwood until her son's majority upon that only child lady jane lavished all her care but did not squander the wealth of her affection perhaps her capacity for loving had died with her husband she had been proud and fond of him but she was not proud of the little boy in velvet knickerbockers whose good looks were his only merit and who was continually being guilty of some new piece of mischief laming ponies smashing orchids glass china and generally disturbing the perfect order which was briarwood's first law when the boy was old enough to go to eton he seemed still more remote from his mother's love and sympathy he was passionately fond of field sports and those lady jane vaudrey detested he was backwards in all his studies despite the careful coaching he had received from the mild anglican curate of briarwood village he was intensely pugilistic and rarely came home for the holidays without bringing a black eye or a swollen nose as the result of his latest fight he spent a good deal of money and in a manner that to his mother's calm sense appeared simply idiotic his hands were always grubby his nails wore almost perpetual mourning his boots were an outrage upon good taste and he generally left a track of muddy footmarks behind him along the crimson carpet corridors what could any mother do for such a boy except tolerate him love was out of the question how could a delicate high-bred woman soft-handed velvet-robed care to have such a lad about her a boy who smelt of stables and wore hobnailed boots whose pockets were always sticky with toffee and his handkerchiefs a disgrace to humanity who gave his profoundest thoughts to pigeon fancying 
and his warmest affections to ratting terriers nay who was capable of having a live rat in his pocket at any moment of his life but while all these habits made the lad abominable in the eyes of his mother the duke and duchess of dovedale admired the young hercules with a fond and envious admiration the duke would have given coal-pits and tin mine all the disposable property he had and deemed it but a small price for such a son the duchess thought of her feeble boy-babies who had been whooping coughed or scarlet fevered out of the world and sighed and loved her nephew better than ever his mother had loved him since his babyhood when the dovedales were at their place in the forest roderick almost lived with them or at any rate divided his time between ashburn park and the abbey house and spent as little of his life at home as he could he patronized lady mabel who was his junior by five years rode her thoroughbred pony for her under the pretense of improving its manners until he took a header with it into a bog out of which pony and boy rolled and struggled indiscriminately boy none the worse pony lamed for life he played billiards with the duke and told the duchess all his school adventures practical jokes fights apple pie beds booby traps surreptitious fried sausages and other misdemeanors out of this friendship arose a brilliant vision which reconciled lady jane vaudrey to her son's preference for his aunt's house and his aunt's society why should he not marry mabel by and by and unite these two estates of ashburn and briarwood and become owner of the pits and the mine and distinguish himself in the senate and be created a peer as the husband of lady mabel ashburn he would be rich enough to command a peerage almost as a right but his mother would have had him deserve it but with this idea lady jane urged on her son's education all his hampshire friends called him clever but he won no laurels at school lady jane sent for grinders and had the boy ground but all the grinding could not grind a love of classics or metaphysics into this free son of the forest he went to oxford and got himself ploughed for his little go with a wonderful facility for politics he cared not a jot but he could drive tandem better than any other undergraduate for his year he never spoke at the union but he pulled stroke in the varsity boat he was famous for his biceps his good nature and his good looks but so far he had distinguished himself for nothing else and to this stage of non-performance had he come when the reader first beheld him end of volume one chapter two recording by capricia page